We are the body. We've been talking about going this month, and today I want us to turn to John chapter 17 and to put it in the context of the speech of Jesus during that last evening that he spends with his disciples. Jesus starts in John 13, instructing them, and he has this long discourse there in the upper room is how we understand this to be. And he talks to them about many things, about the fact that he's going away and he's going to send the Holy Spirit and that they are the vine, uh, they are the branches and he is the vine and he is the good shepherd. He talks about all these things in John 13, 14, 15, 16. And at the end of this discourse and perhaps at the end of that first supper which he serves to his disciples, the bread and the cup and the institution of communion as we know it, Jesus prays this long prayer. Now, there is a prayer in the Bible we call the Lord's Prayer, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And Jesus gave us that prayer to pray. He said, when you pray, pray like this. And so we often quote that prayer. But that's not a prayer that Jesus necessarily needed to pray. You know, forgive us our sins was something he wanted us to pray. That's in the, Lord, in the Lord's Prayer that we call. So it is a model prayer for us. This is the Lord's Prayer, John 17. Somebody has called it the high priestly prayer of Jesus. I enjoy hearing my wife Janet pray. And if you're not praying together as a couple, you're missing out on a great opportunity to, to glimpse into the soul of your spouse. Because when Janet prays, she always surprises me. And I hear in the words of her prayer the way her heart is turned. And the things that are of greatest concern to her, they come out in prayer. And when we sincerely come to the Father, and we lift our prayers unto Him, we are indeed burying our heart. To overhear that is to know something of the soul of the person you are living with. And it will surprise you. And it will help you as a spouse to reorient your own priorities. You will think about the things that are first on your prayer list and how that contrasts with the things that are first on your spouse's prayer list, the things that first come to mind. Now, in John 17, we overhear the Lord's prayer. And we ought to listen really well because we want to pick up on the things that are part of his heart. He's burying his heart before the Father in John 17. It is a beautiful glimpse into the things that are central to the Savior as he faces the cross. He's about to pour out his life for us. And these are the words that he prays. Now, in the end of the prayer, I was struck by the phrases in verse 21, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And later on in verse 23, 
May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So verses 21 and 23 have this thought in them that the Savior will be made known by the unity of his disciples and that the world will know that he was sent from the Father because of the way the disciples behave. And I started thinking about how important it is for you and me who live in our community to go about our words, our deeds, and our daily life with the notion in mind that we are protecting the reputation of Jesus as a church and as individuals in the world. And that the, the world, and, and Jesus has this concern, that the world will believe that he came from the Father. Now, he's talking about the world a lot in this prayer, but he's not really praying for the world. He's praying for his disciples. But he comes to the conclusion, and he says, Father, let there be perfect unity in them. So the world he is concerned about will believe that you sent me. In other words, there's a possibility that should you and I, as the body of Christ, fail to display the unity of which he speaks, then the world won't really get it. So I thought to myself, well, let me go back to the front of this prayer and see what Jesus is talking about when he talks about unity and the mission to carry the gospel to the nations and that the world may believe that you sent me. And in verse 2, he says, and just, just look on over to verse 2, and we can put it up on the screen. Father, the time has come, Jesus prays. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you, for you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Jesus reiterates to the Father in his prayer the supreme and glorious purpose for which he visited our planet. He came so that the world would know the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. And this, I believe, is the first step toward unity, is understanding the mission which energized the Savior from his arrival on the planet and is supposed to energize the church of Jesus Christ and every individual in it, every day, every moment, every action, every word. We are sent from the Father. As the Father sent Jesus, he said, so send I you in the same way send I you. 
and we as brothers and sisters in the body are to be consumed with the purpose of sharing God's truth and love in our world, just as Jesus was. To have this grand purpose is to follow in the steps of Jesus. We are people with a purpose, carrying God's love and truth to the nations. That's who we are. And Jesus had work to do, W-O-R-K. He had work to do in the world. In fact, when the disciples come back and they find that Jesus has been visiting with the Samaritan lady at the well all this time, they, they said, hey, don't you want something to eat? And he says, I have meat to eat that you do not know about. And they wonder, what's that? And he says, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. Jesus was working in the world. Now, we know the kind of work that Jesus did. He categorized it in three ways. To heal the sick, to cast out demons, and to carry the gospel, to preach the gospel to the poor and to all who would hear. So it was healing, casting out, and preaching. That was the ministry of Jesus. And when Jesus began his ministry, he read from Isaiah, the prophet. Isaiah 61, and he, in his own hometown, he read this and said, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, to liberate the captive, to give sight to the blind, to give freedom to those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. This is what he quoted. And so he has sent his church, his body, out into the world in a similar mission. And we have work to do. So one of the distinguishing things is our purpose. And the other is the work we do in the world that, the, that completes the purpose which God has given us. And it is work. Sometimes we say, well, I am a busy person and I don't know if I can go do that. I have so many other things to do. And we know that it takes time and resources and energy to get out there and do something in the world. But we need to be specifically fulfilling the work that Jesus has given us. We can fulfill that work in part in our everyday activities as we go about our lives. And I hope that you see the work which you do as the work God has given you. And so it is ordained of God and purposed of God. And if you are a, a teacher in the schools, you are doing the work of God. You're on the front lines. And you need to see that. It's his divine assignment. And I'm not taking away from that at all. If you're in the legal profession or in medicine or wherever you might be, it is important to see your work as ordained of God and given by God. And, and this is something God wants you to do in his world. You need to celebrate your work. And not just clock in and clock out and think of that as eight wasted hours until you can get to your real life, which is the weekend. I mean, you want to do your work in the world as a gift from God and a sacrifice unto him. And that is clear in Scripture. You have to do that. But many of us have jobs that will never take us by. Bartimaeus on the Jericho Road. We just won't go by. 
And in order for us to be engaged, as Jesus was, with the needy, we may have to go down to the emergency room or go over to the nursing home or make a trip to the hospital or load up and go down to the mission and there see and experience in our own community those whom Jesus loves who are in need. I believe that if the heart of Jesus is reflected in his church, then his church will be engaged with those who are hurting. And we'll have a heart for them and care for them. And we will do our work hardwired to our word so that we don't ever try to separate the word from the work. The word is the way we articulate in syllables and Voice and page. God's great gift in His Son, Jesus. And the work is the way we illustrate it every day. And it takes both. Now Jesus, as He continues the prayer, talks about the protection He is going to give to His disciples. And that's verse 11. And I want you to see verse 11. Jesus is praying... He has prayed for himself in the first part of the prayer. Then he starts praying for his disciples. And we envision these 11 men now with Judas having, having left the room. In the upper room, these 11 fellows that he has called and he has trained for three years. And they are sitting around the table. They are young men. They are fishermen. And folks who grew up mostly in Galilee and other places, they're all Jewish. And they're sitting there in the room and he starts praying for them in their hearing. I will remain in the world no longer, Jesus prays, but they are still in the world. And I am coming to you. You hear the heart of the Savior? I'm coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name. The name you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. Protect them by your name. Now, I've been thinking about that. How does Jesus protect you by his name? And he says, it's the name you gave me. And what I think about when I think about the name you gave me, it is the name of Jesus, the one the miners had on their T-shirt. It is the New Testament version of the Old Testament, Joshua. And it means the Lord saves. And the J in Jesus is the J from Jehovah. That's the part of Jesus' name that is the sacred name of the Lord in the Old Covenant. And so the name Jesus had Im- has embedded in it what God gave to Moses at the burning bush when he said, I want to know your name. And he said, I am. Well, that's the J in Jesus. And the angel said, you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. He's going to be a savior. Like God is savior, Jesus is going to be savior. And so, in the name of Jesus... 
there is power and protection. When you read about the name of Jesus, you may not think about all that is in that name, but I want you to think for a moment about the name of Jesus as the verbal receptacle into which we pour all of his character and his person, his mission, his purpose, everything about him captured in that name. So that the name represents essentially who he is. When, when Peter and John used the name of Jesus, the lame man stood up and was healed. And Peter later said, it is by this name which this man stands before you whole. And there is no other name given under heaven among men whereby we must be saved. But this name, the name of Jesus. The name of Jesus protects our unity. You say, what is it that unifies the church? It is Jesus who unifies the church. He is the oneness of the church. He is the unity of the church. When everybody is focused on Jesus, we move together as a body. His name protects us from disunity. Now, there was a fellow in the closest circle of disciples who betrayed the Lord Jesus with a kiss. His name was Judas, and he's mentioned here. Verse 12, while I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that Scripture would be fulfilled. The only one we lost was Judas, the son of perdition. What was wrong with him? He never got Jesus. That's what was wrong with him. He never got it. He thought all along, my understanding of Judas is, he thought all along this was going to be an earthly kingdom. Jesus was going to overthrow the Romans. He wanted to be part of that political insurrection. He was so disappointed when Jesus said, I'm going to suffer and die. He couldn't get it. He had this triumphal notion about the mission of Jesus in the world like some people still have. Like it's still about accumulating, conquering, and taking over the planet somehow instead of laying down your life and dying for those in need. We have a false gospel that supposes that if you trust in Jesus, all the good things just going to pour your way. And Jesus clearly described the opposite. That if you give your life to me, you're going to have suffering and trouble and tribulation in this life. In this world, you're going to suffer, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Essentially, Jesus laid down his life as a picture and pattern for everybody in this room. This is what it means to follow Jesus. Judas didn't get it. And so he turned from the Savior to the silver. 30 pieces of silver, that's a pretty good price. Which some people still do. Turning from the Savior to the silver, well, we tried that route. 
Brothers and sisters, unity is hard work. It's hard work. It's daily work. It's the work of every word and every deed. Don't you dare talk about your church in third person. Well, I don't know what they're doing down there. Don't do it. I tell our staff, don't ever talk about the staff in third person. Yeah, I think you're right. They don't know what they're doing. You're one of us. So no matter where you are in the body, it's always we. It's we. It's us. We talk about our church in the first person. If you can't talk about this church in the first person, is it really your church? Are you really part of this body? If it feels weird for you to talk about it in the first person, maybe something's wrong. Jesus intends for you to talk about the church in the first person. The first step toward unity is knowing that this is us. We are together. We belong in the body. We serve Christ together. The name of Jesus protects our unity. He says, I am coming to you now, verse 13. But I say these things while I am still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. Jesus wants you to be joyful. Say, when you come to church, pray that joy will just bubble out of you. All right? Pray you're going to have a joyful presence with your brothers and sisters. I know there is pain in this body. We've had four funerals in the last ten days. We have people who have recovered from surgery and are facing more surgery. We have difficulties and hardships. We have families in crisis. I know there is pain in the body. But Jesus prayed that my joy would be in them and their joy would be full. And the scripture says the joy of the Lord is what? Your strength. The joy of the Lord is the strength of his people. So when he prays for joy, he's praying for an essential quality that gives you strength in the world to live for him and to be his. The name of Jesus protects our unity. The name of Jesus gives us that joy as we meet together. Unity in the church is the internal integrity of the body of Christ. Unity has never been as important to the church as it was to the Savior. We find so many things to differ on and fight about. We talk about one another, not realizing that our gossip tears down the body. It damages the body. Sometimes we divide into factions not realizing that that tears down the body. Jesus prayed that we would be one because unity is a strength. And he said, I want you to be one like I and the Father are one. 
that mysterious unity that binds together the Trinity and the Godhead, let that be evident in you. Let the Holy Spirit so fill you that you are connected one to another. My three-year, three-and-a-half-year-old granddaughter, Elena, for some reason filled a cup full of ice chips and took them to bed. Okay, and she puts them on the bedstead and she's eating them one by one and she doesn't get anywhere near through before she's fast asleep. And the next morning, she came to her mother and she said, Mom, it's so mysterious. While I was sleeping, somebody took the ice and put in water. And I think about how ice cubes sort of sit in a cup, barely touching. And how water is melted together into one. And how the Holy Spirit is busy knocking off our rough edges. And teaching us how to get along with one another so we're not so much like porcupines curling up in the cold And prickling each other, but we are learning how to love and enjoy one another's company and fellowship and and be one. The name of Jesus protects our unity. He prayed for it here. Essential to our witness in the world, this unity is. We will have a powerful witness as we work together as a body. Where every member is using his and her gifts. And all of those gifts are given for the common good. So Jesus says, Lord, Father, let them be one so the world may know that you sent me. The world is so divided. It's compartmentalized. Everywhere you look in the world, there is strife and discord and disharmony. Wars and rumors of wars all over the world, but not so in the church of Jesus Christ. It is to be a a marvelous and surprising unity. Jesus said, this is how they're going to know that you're my disciples. If you have, what? Love one for another. This is how the world's going to know you're my disciples. If you have love one for another. It's going to be so surprising, so startling in the world for them to look at the church and see in the church what they long for in the rest of their world but never can find. What they'd love to have in their family but they can't experience it. This kind of unity, this kind of love, it is a great testimony in the world that we love each other. Essential to our testimony is our unity. The name of Jesus protects us from the evil one. Read on in verse 14. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. See, this is the world that Jesus wants to know him. But they've hated them. For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Now, the evil one is Satan. And the evil one is the active presence of evil in the world. Some people think that evil is passive. Not so in the teachings of Jesus. 
Pastor Peter says that Satan prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And he says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. There were some disciples, well, there were some actually Jews in Acts 19 who overheard the disciples casting out demons in the name of Jesus, and they decided they were going to do it. So they started going around saying in the name of Jesus, trying to heal people and cast out demons. And they came to this man who was afflicted, and they used the name of Jesus. And the, and the Scripture says the demon inside of him said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? And he jumped on him and beat him up. You can read about that in Acts 19. It's a very interesting story. Now, the name of Jesus is the protection against the evil one as you know him and follow him and live for him and are filled with his spirit every day. And you encounter the evil one every day that you live. If you will hold the name of Jesus close and know that it is given to you in the world and you, know, you don't want to soil it, you are wearing his name on your person. It is the banner across your chest. You are saying you are a follower of Jesus and you want to protect his reputation in the world. And you will pray for the power to resist the evil one, the enemy, the tempter. Purity of life is what Jesus is calling for. His name protects us from the evil one, and his name protects us from conformity to the world, from conforming to the world. The Scripture says they are not of the world. Verse 16, even as I am not of it, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Paul says, be not conformed to this world. Don't be conformed to it. God has given you his word. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, but delights in the law of the Lord. You're going to be peculiar if you follow Jesus in this world and you're not conformed to the world. The world wants to give you its priorities. It wants to shape you and mold you. And the world gets angry if you don't fit its mold. The world will react against you if you don't fit the mold. If you start standing up to your peers when they want to do things that are unholy and you know are not what God wants you to do, they get angry about that. Everybody who's involved in sin wants you to come along. They want your permission. They want you to join them in their iniquity. They want to drag you along. You come on now. We're all going to do this together. And the peer pressure is what the world uses to conform you to its own image. And what Jesus calls you to do do is be a stalwart for him in the world in which you remain. He's not taking you out of this world. Sometimes you pray that. Oh, Lord, I just want an environment where there aren't any sinners anymore. You know, where there's no more cursing, no more lying, no more cheating, no more backbiting. Lord, give me some place where people don't stab each other in the back and treat one another like this. Sometimes we pray that. And Jesus is going to do that one day. 
Okay? He's going to take you to the perfect place where you'll no longer be in the presence of sin. He calls it the Father's house. One day you're going to be in the Father's house, and that's your permanent address. And right now you sure do feel like a stranger, an alien, and that's right. That's how it is. This world is not your home. You're just passing through. You've trusted Jesus as Savior. You are to conduct yourself as strangers here. In reverent fear, Pastor Peter said. That's your, that's your style in the world. You're passing through. This world is not your permanent address, and you know it. And that future orientation toward heaven, that is supposed to be in you. Every day, knowing that the Father has prepared a place for you, and He's going to receive you there one day. And that's where you really belong. And you don't fit here. Anymore, And you don't want to fit here anymore. You want to be like the father whose child you are. You want to reflect his character, his words, his deeds in the world. And it's going to be strange. It's going to seem peculiar. The Bible uses the word peculiar to describe God's people. And it's all right for you to be strange, okay? It's hard, but it's all right. In fact, it's just right. They are in the world, but not of the world. That's a hard tension. My father said one day, my physical father, dad, said one day, sometimes you just want to be with Abraham up on the mountain. You don't want to go down to Sodom and Gomorrah with Lot. You just want to stay on the mountain. When Elijah got afraid... And the woman threatened his death. He went to the mountain and hid in a cave. And sometimes it feels, Lord, can't we just go to the cave? But no, he left us here for a purpose. To carry out his mission in the world. And he has prepared the place for us. The Father's house. Everybody in this room feels pressure. To conform your priorities, your purpose, your attitudes to the lifestyle and thinking of the world. Jesus wants you to demonstrate his glory in the world. To be a beacon of light. The good news of the gospel in his world. And he's filled you up with his Holy Spirit and he saved you and rescued you and he left you here for that very purpose. And it is a wonderful and glorious thing to be part of God's purpose. Yesterday, in this place, I stood right here and delivered a message to a grieving family. Hayward Watts, who sat right back here by Bill and Karen Right in that area, when he came to church, he went to be with the Lord. He was 90 years old. And he was a wonderful man. He encouraged me. I'd see him. He had this big handshake. One of his grandchildren said he had such big hands and strong hands. And she remembered as a child feeling his hands. And she said those hands really shaped us. And they disciplined us, and they loved us with unconditional love. And I told the family, children, grandchildren, 
You've got the fingerprints of Hayward Watts all over your life. It's why you're preaching and teaching and singing and living as God's people in the world in part because Hayward Watts put his fingerprints on you. So, what kind of fingerprints have you got on your life? What's left its impression? When you get in the moment of decision, what comes to mind? Part of the walk with the Savior is training your heart and your mind to follow Christ. And so letting the hands of the Savior shape who you are. Let's bow together. Heavenly Father, we come before you as your children, so delighted to know that you've set aside a home in heaven for us and that that's our permanent address, and we love that, God. Thank you, Lord, that you give eternal life to those who believe, and we look forward to that one day seeing you face to face. We pray in this time that you will help us be faithful. And Lord, I pray for men and women in this room who are facing temptation right now and are making decisions. God, that you would help us be separated unto you, holy like you were holy, following the teaching of Christ, being focused upon him in everything so that we might protect your reputation in the world and that you might protect us from the evil one. Thank you for your presence here today. Help us to follow you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.